0: Well, good morning. I would invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. We've been unpacking the Incarnation here this morning, or these past four Sundays. Here's our fifth Sunday, and just really trying to deal with some of the uh, questions of life, and, uh, and, and just showing how the birth of Christ really answers some of the deep and most profound questions of life. And today we're going to be dealing with our fifth question, the question of what does God want from me? And we're going to see how the Incarnation answers that question here in Galatians 4. You know, this week I was reading a book, and I came across the, the author of the book was describing uh, something that had happened, and when I read this account, uh, I actually thought of Christmas. I want to share with you what I read in the book, and then uh, make the connection between that and Christmas here. But the account was describing how the uh, Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, had developed this cannon to shoot at airplanes. And, and, and the reason why they developed this is, is they, they realized that one of the big threats in flying is uh, bird strikes. You know, airplanes taken off and, and you hit a bird, and, and, and that can be really dangerous. And so they had developed a cannon that they could that they used to actually shoot chickens at the windshields of airplanes to see how the windshields could handle the impact and they would set it up at different speeds to figure out you know take off and landing and different things if you were going to hit a bird what what would happen to the windshield and so they had this cannon they would fire chickens at these windshields to make sure the windshields were strong enough okay i'm glad they did that right you know <laughs> so so uh this company in Britain had developed a high-speed locomotive and to, to travel throughout Europe. And, of course, those high-speed locomotives are going fast, and they heard birds as well. And so they asked if they could borrow this cannon to shoot it at their new locomotive, shoot a bird at their new locomotive. So they did. They borrowed the cannon, and they, they take the uh, chicken, they load it into the uh, cannon, and they fire it at the, at the locomotive. And it goes right through the windshield, busts up the conductor's chair, puts a dent in the wall, destroys the panel, just, you know, mess the whole locomotive up. And of course, they're distraught that their locomotive didn't make it. And, uh, and so they sent all the findings back to the FAA and they said, could you help us interpret the data here? Help us figure out what we did wrong. Obviously, your windshields are strong enough to handle this. Ours aren't. Could you, you know, we'll send you all our data. Could you help us figure this out? And so they came back with their response. Here's what the FAA wrote back to the locomotive company. Uh, One sentence. You might want to try to test this with a thawed chicken. (laughs) Okay? So they shot a frozen chicken at their locomotive and discovered that that was not a good thing. (laughs) Now, I'm sure you see the connection between this and Christmas, don't you? All right? I wonder in the world, does this have to do with Christmas? Okay, now I'm going to try to make the connection. Follow me on this journey. If I don't make it, well, I didn't make it, but we'll see if we can make the connection here. Here's what I was thinking. Sometimes you just assume certain realities, right? Somebody just assumed that chickens should be frozen. Someone, right? I mean, obviously... You're not going to shoot a live chicken at it, so they're going to grab a chicken out of a freezer. Someone just assumed, just load the live frozen chicken. No one bothered to ask, should the chicken be thawed or not? Of all these brilliant minds that design these high-speed locomotives, no one bothered to ask the simple question, what kind of chicken should we fire at? Now, by choosing the wrong chicken, they messed the whole thing up. Now, here's the connection. There are we are inundated by a lot of information about Christ at Christmas time. We get cards, we get songs, we get letters, we get all kinds of stuff thrown at us, and we're just constantly surrounded by this. But sometimes we don't ever bother to ask ourselves, is what we believe about God and what we believe about the incarnation correct? Are we working off the right assumptions? It's easy sometimes just to collect a lot of data along the way, and especially if you've been a Christian for some time, you've collected a lot of data about Christ. You've read a lot of books, you've heard a lot of sermons, you've, 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 you've sung a lot of songs, and over time you just start collecting this data, and you can start working off the assumptions of, those data, of that data. And oftentimes those assumptions aren't correct. Oftentimes those assumptions aren't right. And we can wind up firing frozen chickens at things and messing a lot of things up. When I read that story I was this week, it just gripped me. I'm like, you know, this is the whole reason why we're tackling these questions and trying to jump into the incarnation the way that we are. We need to test our assumptions. We need to make sure that what we believe about the incarnation is correct. Because if we see it and we grasp it, then all of life's questions begin to start getting answered. Now today, the question is, what does God want from me? What does God want from me? What what, what is it that he wants? And we could answer that question a lot of ways. He wants you to be holy. He wants you to serve him. He wants you to share his message with the world. He wants you to do lots of things. But here's the question. If we were to look at it and say, at the end of the day, what is the irreducible minimum of what God wants out of this relationship with you? Why did he send Jesus in the world, and how does he want you to understand that? How would we answer that question? Well, I would tell you this, that if we answer it correctly, it will build our relationship with God and lead us into spiritual maturity. If we answer it incorrectly, it will actually get in the way of our relationship with God and keep us in a state of spiritual immaturity. And so, this answer to this question is very important because it really will drive us to understanding our walk with God and our growth as a Christian, our spiritual maturity. Now, our outline gives you the answer What does God want from me? God wants me to know that I'm his child, and God wants me to live as his child. But we're going to unpack what that means. And I want to show you how Paul uses the Incarnation to bring us down to the irreducible minimum of what God wants out of this relationship with us. And what I want you to see as we do this, that we understand that this is really the key to your relationship with God. This is the key to your spiritual maturity. And if you don't catch this, your relationship with God can get messed up. Your spiritual spiritual life will always remain in a state of immaturity. And so it's very important that we see this. And it's important to recognize that Paul wants the church in Galatia to see this. And so what he does is he ties the incarnation of Christ into what God ultimately wants out of this relationship with us. So we'll see this here today. Let's look at the first point. Just a little side note. Throughout the text itself, you're going to see the sun. Use the the, uh, the title "son," and and when you see the title "son," don't just think that Paul is thinking of only boys. You know, it's, currently in this culture, we're kind of so sensitive about these terms, so we try to make everything neutral. And that day, when "son" or "man" was used quite frequently, they meant mankind or or children. So even though at times I'm going to say "child," oftentimes I'm going to talk about "son" and "sonship," but I'm talking universally humans, okay, men and women. So women, insert yourself in there if you hear "sonship." Okay, just so you're not confused. But let's hear, look at our first point here. God wants me to know him as child. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me here. I mean that an heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, of course, we have just jumped right in the middle of a text. And you say, this has nothing to do with Christmas. I have no clue what this means. This is the middle of a thought. And you're exactly right. It has everything to do with Christmas. But let me set the context so you can see what he's saying here. Two things you need to be aware of. First of all, let's just deal with the context in Galatians. What's this letter about? What's he getting at? Paul is writing this letter to a church in Galatia. The church is made up with a a lot of of Gentile or non-Jewish believers and some Jewish believers. Now, these, these Gentile believers, of course, were living in paganism. They were worshiping a lot of false gods, and they were involved with all the rituals that are involved with worshiping in, in a pagan religion, which is a lot of ritual cleansing and a lot of ritual foods and, and all these ceremonies. And they had many of them because they worshiped many different gods. And each god had their own set of ceremonies and symbols and, and all of this. And that was their background. And they had, they had heard the gospel, placed their faith in Christ, and we're now walking after Christ. They had renounced their paganism, and they're following Christ. Alongside this comes some Jewish Christians. Now, these Jewish Christians, Paul, Paul would say some of them weren't Christians, because what they had done is they had professed faith in Christ. They said Jesus is the Messiah, but if you want to please God, you're going to have to follow all the laws of the Old Testament. God put them in there for a reason. You have to follow them. And if you're going to mature in, 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 with your relationship with God, it's going to begin, first of all, men with getting circumcised and then everyone else. You're going to have to follow the calendars and the ritual calendars and, and all of the food calendars and the celebration of the holidays. And if you don't do that, you're not maturing in Christ. You're not maturing as a Christian. So these guys had come alongside and they had, they had brought that message to the church in Galatia. Paul got angry about this and he said, This is so bad. This is horrible. That's heresy. Christ is everything. There's no Jesus and. It's Christ alone. So he's making this point in a really strong way throughout this letter. Now, one of the things Paul has to do in order to make this point is he's got to then explain the law, the Old Testament, right? Because it could seem like he's saying, well, God just suddenly abruptly changed, right? He's working for a couple thousand years in one direction and hits the brakes and says, okay, no more law. Now it's all Jesus. And so what Paul has to do is explain how do we process the 39 books of the Old Testament? How do we process all the rituals? What do we do with them? Are they bad? Are we getting rid of them? Are they horrible? Are they wretched? So he's trying to explain to them not only that Christ is everything, but how to understand the Old Testament. Okay, got that? So there's our our context. That's where we're at here in chapter 4. He's trying to explain the law. Now, the second thing that we have to understand about this text is the illustration he's using. In order to explain the law, he uses an illustration. The illustration he uses is from family life. In the Roman Empire, family life was very structured. So let's just take an example of this. You, let's just say you have a family with a father who's moderately successful. So he's got some money, maybe he's got some land, he's, he's got all of the, 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 the things that would be a moderately successful person in that day. And if he had children, here's the way he would have raised his children. He would have said, okay, I have these, these, these children, I have this son here, and uh, right now the son, because he's a child, is going to be run by all the tutors and governors that I'm going to put around him. They would bring in servants into their home, and those servants' role would be to raise their children, educate their children, do all of these things, just put, and put all these rules over them. And, and, and these kids would go to school with the servants, and the servants would do everything to care for the kids. There would be a day when the father would appoint to say... My son will no longer be a child. He will now be an heir. Which means he actually starts getting independent use of the the business. I'm bringing him in as a partner. I'm going to give him a portion of the business. I'm going to let him start running it. He's going to be a man. Now the father would set that day based upon the maturity of his child. As his child would get to a certain point of maturity, the father would say, you know what? I'm seeing you grow up, son. I'm seeing you become a man. I'm seeing you begin to start start being internally responsible. I can trust you with the business, so I'm going to give you a portion of it now. You've arrived. And it was the father who was the gatekeeper of that, and he would determine that based on the maturity of the child. Now that's the illustration Paul is using to describe the law. Now let's look back at at, at the text again. Look at the first two verses with me. He says, I mean that an heir, right? So now the, the son. that that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave. This is his illustration, right? The child cannot determine anything in their life. Their father's telling them when to go to bed. He's telling them what to eat. He's telling them where he's supposed to go. Everything. He's under complete control. He's just like a servant. He has no freedom. So the child, even though he's the heir, even though one day he's going to get all of his father's inheritance, well, he's still a child, He's not being treated like that. What are you saying? As long as he's a child, he's no different from a slave. You got the point, right? Though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Okay, so there's the illustration. He's using all of this to make a simple point. He's pulled, by pulling this illustration in, the readers would have said, oh yeah, exactly. Some guy would have said, yeah, that's right, when I was a kid... Even though I now run my father's business, he's given it to me. When I was a kid, I didn't have any authority. I didn't have any rules. I was told what to do. And we even understand that in our day. We completely understand that. We, we know what that's like as a kid. Remember, your f- parents told you, gave you all the rules. Or if you're a parent now, you're, you're set bedtimes and all these kind of things. And your kids have no freedom. None whatsoever. None. No freedom. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you're under my authority. Suddenly the Spirit's coming on me. I'm preaching to my children. No, I'm kidding. Okay, so, so there's his illustration. Now here's this point in verse 3. Ready? In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now what's he getting at? He's saying, when he's referencing this element of being children, what he's doing is he's saying, and, and we'll see this in verse 4, the birth of Christ was the moment of maturity. So before he came into the world, we were not spiritually mature. And so we were under certain boxes of rules. Here's the key you have to understand. The law was put into place not to mature people. The law was put into place because people were spiritually immature. Immature. And they needed that protection. This is what he's trying to say. They needed the protection of the law. Why do we have bedtimes when our kids are little? Because left to their own, they would never go to bed. Right? They would just be playing until they just dropped and fell asleep right there. Wherever that was. Why do we tell them and pick their food for them? Left to their own, they would never eat broccoli. All right, They would never choose that. If you could just say, eat whatever you want in that refrigerator, what would go first? We know that about children. They're not mature enough to make the decisions. And so parents come in, and they set up a set of boundaries. And they say, we're going to make these decisions for you. Sometimes they look at you like, I know better Listen, I know you've been alive 37 years longer than I have, but I know better! My 10 years have been more profitable than yours! (laughs) They think that way at least, right? And the parents come and say, no. You see, these rules are here because you're mature. When you begin to mature, the rules go away. This is what Paul is saying. How does he he describe in the whole of the Old Testament? He says the whole, all of those rules were not there to mature you. They were the elementary principles. They were the things that held you in check because you weren't mature. You weren't able to do it. The law holds you in bondage until you can spiritually mature. That's his point. So you see how he's explaining all of this. Now this is all very important because this leads us up to the Christmas story. It leads us up to the incarnation of Jesus. Because now what he's doing is he's setting the table and he's saying, okay... Yeah, there's all of these rules here. There's all these laws in the Old Testament. But do you understand why they were there? Now the question then comes, how do I become spiritually mature? What's the key to spiritual maturity? What's the key to spiritual growth? What's the key to... to, So that I don't have to be under those rules and those bounds. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent His Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So notice this. Notice the very incredible picture. ties into the illustration. The illustration is the father sees the maturity and says, now I'm giving you the inheritance. Now what's the key to the inheritance? What's the key to us being set free from all of those bounds of those laws? He's saying when the fullness of time had come. That means this, God chose a time. Just as the earthly father chooses a time to say, you're now a man, I'm giving you the inheritance. God chose a time. But his time was different. Because his time was not going to be predicated on the fact that you matured yourself enough through the law. The uniqueness of his time is that when he chose the time, he sent Jesus into the world. And notice, he was born under the law, which means he came as a human. And he came and he lived among us. And we've talked about this in the weeks past. The incarnation. He took on flesh. Why? Why? so that He could do something for us. Look at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. He came and lived our world, lived perfectly under our world, accomplished what we could never accomplish, walked in perfect maturity as a human so that He could actually purchase us out of our state of spiritual immaturity and place us into a state of spiritual maturity. That's what He's saying. This is His point. He came. He redeemed you. To redeem means to buy. And so we were under the law, which means we were spiritually mature. We're, we're, we're like that five-year-old that doesn't know how to care for themselves, that doesn't know what's right for themselves, couldn't solve their problems, couldn't get themselves out of a problem. He came and he lifted us out of that state of spiritual immaturity and he placed us into a state of maturity. That's what he's saying. This is what the incarnation's about. Why did Christ come into the world? He came into the world to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons, so that we suddenly enter into a relationship with Him. And the cool thing about this relationship is, look at how beautiful it is. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Isn't that a beautiful statement? That's what he's saying. This is the key. Now, by the way, this is what you have to catch here. If you miss this, you miss your relationship with God, and you miss the key to spiritual maturity. So it's a very important, right? Right? You know, you know, Fran's sitting here going, come on, give it to me. Quit setting it up. But I just want to make sure you're catching this. This is very important. You miss what he's saying here in verse 7. You miss everything about your walk with God. Let's go back and look at 7 again. I've got to find it in my text here. I lost my place. He says... Let's look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. That's the key right there. You see, the key to spiritual maturity is that Christ has redeemed us, and then His Spirit takes up residency in us. That's the only way to mature spiritually. Some people think spiritual maturity is going to come through all of those external components of the law. But just because my kids go to bed at 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock or whatever time I pick doesn't necessarily mean they're maturing. Maturity comes from the inside. Maturity comes from the inside. Those laws cannot mature you. The only thing that can mature you is when the very Spirit of God takes up residency in your heart. Christ came into the world so that God's Spirit could come into your life. We talk about the message of Christmas. I want you to think about the mission of Christmas. What's the mission? God sent His Son into the world so that God could send His Spirit into your life. And when that Spirit enters your life, guess what happens? Two things happen. First, you get a relationship with the Father. Notice, you get the same relationship the Son has. You call Him Abba. You call Him Daddy. You're now in this great relationship with the Father. He's your Dad. He will listen to you. He will be with you. He will never forsake you. He will always be there, and you can always talk to Him. And there's absolutely no barrier between you and God. What does the law do? It places a barrier between you and God. The law would say that you have to come to me so that I could pray for you, so I could be some kind of priest in your life, so that I could do some kind of intercessory thing because you can't go to God. The law would say, you sin, we're going to bring some doves up here, we're going to kill them. So some sacrifice could be made. Puts all these barriers between you and God. But when the fullness of time comes, Jesus came so that his spirit would go into your heart and the next thing you know, you say, man, daddy, you're my father. I love you. You love me. I love you. There's nothing that's going to make this thing go away. But the other component of this is that not only do you get the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God also works within you maturity. Now, we don't have time to unpack all of this, but if you were to flip over to Galatians 5, I'm just going to summarize it for you here, but if you were to flip over to Galatians 5 and you were to to unpack what he's saying... You, you would see this, and let me just give you a summary of it. Some people, when they hear this, they get a little afraid because they think that this kind of message is telling you, you can go out and live for the flesh, live for sin, it doesn't matter now, right? Jesus has freed you from the law, therefore he's freed you from morality. But that's not the case. Being freed from the law doesn't free us from morality. Being freed from the law doesn't say, okay, now it's grace, just go do what you want. Something much more significant has happened. What Paul says in Galatians 5 is that suddenly the very, when the Spirit of God enters our life, the very love of God enters our life. Now the law would say, don't murder someone. And so if you want to be compliant to the law, you wouldn't murder somebody. When the Spirit of God comes into your life, the Spirit of God says, love your enemies. Do good to those. Who persecute you. Your Spirit of God is driving you to love your enemies the law of god would say well hey listen you know sometimes clothing gets a little risque we should set up a bunch of rules about what you should wear to church and what you shouldn't wear to church we set these rules out right and this way everybody's dressed appropriately that would be silly because the love of god would say i'm going to get up in the morning and make sure that what i wear is is caring and loving for other people i'm going to be driven by something deeper than a dress code i'm going to be driven by the fact that i want to make sure that what i wear serves those around me cares for people much more deeply. See, we can set up a bunch of rules, but it actually never teaches you to love. But when the very Spirit of God comes into our life, we suddenly start serving others, and that's the key to spiritual maturity. How would you define spiritual maturity? I would define it simply this way. That you are growing in your undevoted love for God and your undevoted love for others. That's maturity. But that love can only come when the Spirit of God takes up residency in your life. So the Incarnation has come. Jesus came into the world so God's Spirit could come into your life. So that you could have an undistracted, unhindered relationship with the Father. And that you would grow in love for Him and love for others. Chapter 5 unpacks all of that about love and making that connection. And you can read that on your own. It's, It's beautiful. But you can see his point. Now what happens? As verse 7 says, you're not a slave, you're a son. And if you're a son, you're an heir. All of the blessing of the kingdom of God is yours. It's all yours. What does God want from you? God wants you to be his son. He wants to place his spirit in your life so you would have an undistracted, unhindered relationship with him. And that you would mature in love for him and for others. See, it's much deeper. It's much more profound. It's it's being driven by an internal thing. That's what God wants for me. But there's a second thing we'll see in this text. God not not only wants me to know that I'm his child, he wants me to live like his child. He wants me to live like his child. Now, I want to give an illustration of the illustration. There's, there's, there's all these illustrations in the text. But let me give you an illustration of something from our culture before we read here in verse 8. Let me just give you a simple illustration here. Uh, there was a TV show about 10 years ago or so on called Everybody Loves Raymond. Some of you have maybe seen the show, familiar with it. If you're not familiar with it, here's the premise of the show. It's a guy who's married. He's got young kids. He lives across the street from his parents. The mom still wants to be the mom of her son. So she babies him. She mothers him. She gets in the way of the relationship between he and his wife. She makes food. She does their laundry. She's constantly butting into that relationship. And the whole sitcom is predicated on all the conflict that comes from a kid who hasn't left home yet. Or a kid, a man, a 40-year-old man with his own family, but yet he's still accepting the babying of his mother and his wife feels all the tension because his ultimate allegiance is towards his mom and it's not towards his wife. Now what sets up the conflict of the show and what sets up the, what, what some would call the entertainment value of the show is the fact that everyone knows that's wrong. Everybody knows it's wrong and so it sets up all of the jokes. The mom comes in and begins to do her things and everybody goes, uh-oh, I know what's going to happen here. I know how his wife's going to respond. I wonder how he's going to get himself out of this mess. Who will he side with, his mom or his wife? And, and that's the sitcom. It's all based, predicated on this. And when you're watching it, if you are really emotionally entering into it, which you shouldn't, but let's just say you are emotionally entering into this sitcom, you would be saying, Come on, love your wife! You know, Leave your mom for this cause. A man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. Come on! Right, If you were entering into it emotionally, that's what you'd be saying. You're watching. Why? Because it's absolutely silly to live that way. Keep that in mind. Because listen to what Paul says in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to want you want to be once more? See what he's saying? He's saying, you know, you guys were worshiping all these pagan gods. And you had to follow all these rules. You had to do this cleansing here and this festival there, and eat this food at this time, and stay away from that food. And you were just under the bondage. It was you're like a five year old with a bedtime and food you have to eat. You can't leave the table till you finish it, on. you got to clean your room. You got to. You're in this world, and then Christ comes and matures you and places His Spirit in your heart, gives you this undistracted relationship with God, it gives you the ability to love Him and love others, and now you're fulfilling the law in ways you never heard of. And you want to go back there? Come on, Raymond, leave home. Cleave to your wife. You've got something much more profound. Got something much deeper. Get out of your home is what he's saying. Why would you want to go back there? Why would you want to go back there? You see his point. This is his point. Christ came into the world so that his spirit could come into you give you a relationship with Him and teach you to love in ways you never, ever could have ever imagined. And you would rather walk away from an undistracted relationship with God and the ability to fulfill the law to go back to a distracted, a totally disconnected relationship with God where you could never love? Notice verse 8. Again, formally, this is how you used to live. You've been set free. So, what's his point? Look at 10. You've observed days and months and seasons and years. You're back to this again. This is your walk with God now. Why would you do that? So you get to verse 11. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. That's a, you know what he's saying? If that's really where you want to go, I'm afraid I wasted my time. I actually thought that you had embraced Christ. That's a, that's a sobering statement. You see, the point of the incarnation is to send Jesus into the world so that his spirit could come into you and give you an undistracted relationship with the Father, and give you the ability to mature in love for him and love for others. That's the focal point of our walk with Christ. That's it. If we back away from that, we're moving into absolute insanity. Absolute insanity. Doesn't make any sense. Let me just close this by telling you an experience I had with somebody several years ago. Probably about more like 12 years ago or so. This guy was a a very successful guy in his career. He was in the military. Very successful in his military career. His family life was a wreck. He was on the brink of divorce. His kids, was, he was estranged from his kids. There was all kinds of tension in his home. And I sat up late with him one night. He was just kind of spewing out all of his heartache and, and everything that was going on. And it's amazing because he was highly, highly you know, decorated in the military. And, and from an external perspective, everybody would look and say, this guy is the guy, man. He's, he's saved people's lives. He's done stuff that, that, that you and I have never thought of doing. And we would look at him and honor him for all that he's done. But when you peer behind all that he accomplished, what's behind is all this pain and misery, and cost to his family. And So we're sitting there up one night, just late. It's 2 in the morning, 3 in the morning. And, and he finally just says, Steve, what does God want from me? And he wasn't asking that in an angry sort of way. He wasn't asking that in some kind of way where he was challenging God. And he wasn't asking for some kind of rule or ritual. He was raised in a church, and and he understood a certain ritual side to his relationship with God. And and I kept talking to him about salvation, but he just couldn't, couldn't grasp it. And he finally said, what does God want from me? And I happened to have been preaching through Galatians. And I happened to have been there in Galatians 4, this passage right here. And I remember telling him, I said, listen, I'll tell you what God wants. God wants you to be his son. Not only does God want you to be his son, he wants to share the inheritance of the kingdom of God with you. And not only that, he wants an unhindered relationship with you. And he wants you to grow in love for him and love for others. You know how he's done all that? By sending his son into the world to redeem you, to pull you out of this state of sin and depravity and wretchedness. And he's going to pull you out of this thing. And he's going to place his spirit in your heart. You see, the wrong answer would have been, well, hey, listen, look at your life, man. You go out, when you go out and go... go uh, uh, out on a mission somewhere, you go to the bars and you get drunk, and sometimes you pick up women, and you got to stop picking up women, and you got to stop getting drunk, and you got to stop messing around with your buddies. And you got, you know, I could have said all that, but you know what that doesn't get him is a relationship with God, it doesn't place his God's spirit in his heart, it just gets him to stop partying. What does God want? God wants him to be his son, he wants him to mature. He wants to lift him out of this, place his spirit in his heart so that he could have an unhindered relationship with the Father and grow in love for him and others. You see, that's what God wants. And if we miss that, if we shape our relationship with God outside of those terms, then we have a distracted and and, and complicated relationship with God where we feel disengaged. And we get stuck in a state of immaturity. Because maturity is growing in love for God and love for others. That's it. That's maturity. And so, if we want to grasp this Christmas story, what I would say, call it the Christmas mission. We have to remember what Paul said here. So in fact, let me just give you three, three things that you could take home from this. Kind of three takeaways and then pray here. The first takeaway is this. You've got to remember you're a child, not a slave. When I think about my walk with God, when I think about Christ coming into the world, I have to stop and think Christ has come to mature me so that I could be His son and get the inheritance and be related to Him and have an unhindered relationship with Him. This is what Christ has done. He's come into the world for this reason. But the second thing, the second takeaway, I would say is this. Restore Maybe you've allowed other loves to take the place of the Father. It's possible that you love your freedom. It's possible that you love your fun. It's possible that you're just loving life. Maybe there's all these things. You're just, you're just, and all of your loves and your passion and your momentum are for this world. And maybe you've lost sight of why Christ came, the mission of Christmas. To put you in a relationship with the Father where you call him Daddy. And I would say maybe today would be a day where you'd want to make that right. And you might want to say, listen, I don't want to have any other allegiance than to the Father. And So maybe restoration is an application for you. But thirdly, I would say, I would put this word out there, refresh. Because it's a relationship, we want to treat it that way. And all relationships take time, speaking, and listening. Right? How many of you have had this same conversation that Heather and I have had many times with your spouse if you're married? We need a date. Right? We need a date. We need need to get together. Why? We haven't spent time together. We haven't talked. We haven't listened to each other. God sent His Son into the world so that God could send His Spirit into your heart so that you could have an unhindered relationship with the Father. And that takes time. That takes speaking and listening. Talking to Him. Listening to Him. And setting aside time. That's the Christmas mission. That's the reality of it. That should shape everything that we do. And I would just tell you that maybe this week, God will give you an opportunity to share this with someone else. Who needs to be reminded that that, that Christmas isn't set up. Christ didn't come into the world to keep us in bondage under that law. He came into the world to free us, to mature us to send His Spirit into our hearts, that we would have an unhindered relationship with Him and we'd grow in maturity in love for Him and love for others. Let's pray together. I thank You, Father, for Jesus who has come into this world to accomplish these things. On this Sunday before Christmas, as we contemplate the Incarnation, I pray, Lord, that that we would remember the irreducible minimum. That You came and You were born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That You might place Your Spirit in our hearts. That we might cry out, Abba, Father. That we might walk in the Spirit. That we would not carry out the desires of the flesh. And that we would understand the freedom that we have to love. Lord, may we capture this today So that our walk with you would be deeper and richer. And that we would mature as believers. Lord, keep us from maturity that that is really shallowness. It's not real maturity at all. It's just conformity to principles. And and allow us to mature, to understand, and to love you and to love others in, 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 in the most profound ways. I thank you for that Christmas mission. Lord, may it just stir our hearts and be a foundation upon which we build our lives. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.